And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm joined today by Margaret Wrinkle. Thanks so much for coming back, Margaret. Thanks for having me back, Stephen. Margaret is the founding editor of Chapter16.org and was last on Book Talk to talk about her first book, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. Today we'll be talking about Graceland at Last, Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South, and it's published by Milkweed Editions. When you were last here, you were writing for the New York Times, but now you've been bumped up to a weekly role with the Times. How did that come about? I was actually already writing weekly when I saw you last time. That came about towards the end of 2017. I had been writing monthly for about six months, and then they asked if I would switch to every week. And I said, Sure. (laughs) We'll try that. I don't know how it'll go. So we tried it for six months and then I felt confident that I was going to be able to keep coming up with something to write about every Monday. So that's been going on since late 2017. So this has been going on the whole time, really. I, I don't know how it just so happened. I had already sold Late Migrations to Milkweed Editions before I got the weekly contract with the Times, but they both seemed to kind of, I don't know, register in the public eye a little more around the same time the book came out. So with well over 100 essays from the Times available to you for Graceland at last, how did you go about selecting which ones would be there? And another key concern is how do you organize that so it feels like a coherent book made up of these very discrete units? I didn't really know how to organize it or how to choose. I talked with my editor at the Times, Peter Catapano, who has edited two collections of essays himself. He is the editor of a long-running series on the Times Opinion Desk called The Stone that's written by a variety of contemporary philosophers, mainly about ethical issues that come up in the news. And he's also the editor of another long-running series, Disability. And he had put these collections together. And so I just asked his advice, what do you think it should be? Should it be sort of a, I don't know, sort of a greatest hits the essays that got the most hits or had the most play on social media? Or should I see if I could figure out a way to make it kind of coherent, more than just my voice, more than just the same author, something that felt more like a book? And he definitely strongly recommended that I try to find some guiding principle that would feel more book-like and not just sort of an anthology-like. And so really the the only option within that category was to put together a collection that tried to represent as many different aspects of life in the South as I could manage, because that is kind of what I'm there for, is to write about the flora, fauna, politics, and culture of the American South. And the first section is flora and fauna, and that would make a great entry point for people who read your first book, Late Migrations. That was very convenient, wasn't it? I was trying to make sure that people, because I noticed when Late Migrations came out that so many people found it by some way other than the New York Times. I mean, there were so many readers who came to it through book club recommendations or independent bookstore. A bookseller put it in their hands and said, you need to read this. Or maybe because of the Today Show book club read with Jenna. And so a lot of people didn't have any idea that I also write about politics and I also write about social justice issues. And it's not just about family and nature. So the nice thing 
about having a flora and fauna section up top is that it is a kind of transition for people coming to Graceland at last because they had already read Late Migrations. Now, you can tell me that rattlesnakes are maligned and misunderstood, but my sympathetic nervous system tells me a different story. Well, both of you are right. Your sympathetic nervous system and your reading mind. I mean, there's a reason we jump when we hear a rattlesnake or see one, although it's almost impossible to see one. I follow a number of naturalists and herpetologists on various social media platforms, and they'll post a picture on Instagram or on Twitter that'll say, timber rattlesnake sunning on a rocky crag or something. And I'll look at this picture, even on a full screen, and I cannot see that rattlesnake. Even when I know I'm what I'm looking for and where, I have to pinch way out, and then I can maybe sort of see it. They're ambush predators. They don't want, want to be seen. And if you'd spend any amount of time in the woods or hiking on trails in middle Tennessee, you're and I would assume Western Tennessee too, definitely Eastern Tennessee, there's going to be rattlesnakes around you. You just won't see them. They aren't aggressive. They aren't trying to hurt us. They're trying to avoid us. And so that's what I mean when I say they're maligned and misunderstood. People think that they're dangerous if they're present, and that's not true. They are designed by nature not to be seen because they're going to look for a mouse or a chipmunk or a squirrel to come by and then hop out and bite them. A rattlesnake is really pretty much defenseless except for its fangs. So, you know, when it does find prey, it will bite it and then retreat and wait and then follow the scent trail till the poison has taken effect because an animal fighting back can cause a lot of damage to a snake. So really, unless you step on one, you don't have anything to be afraid of. They're And they're keeping your rodent population under control. And you said that dry bites are pretty common as well. For that piece, I interviewed a herpetologist, and he said as as much as 50% of the time they're dry. They don't inject venom. Now, if you do get bitten by a rattlesnake, you want to go to the emergency room instantly. They That is a life-threatening situation because there isn't, I don't think, a way to know whether or not you got some venom in there. But it's just kind of like a, a, a brown recluse spider, how much venom they inject depends on the degree to which they are disturbed and scared. And there are plenty of brown recluse spider bites that are annoying, but not in any way incredibly dangerous or anything. Are we going to talk about deadly animals this whole time, Stephen? Well, I was getting ready to go to the deadliest animal, the the political animal. Okay, that'll work. I was going to say that the next uh, section up is politics and religion. And It's then followed by a section on social justice, and I was wondering why you chose to have those topics separated instead of integrated into one whole. Well, first of all, we live in the United States of America, where religion is supposed to be kept very separate from government and from politics, and increasingly they are not. So I I do understand the confusion. Religion is not and should not be a part of any political discussion I also think that things, certain subjects have become politicized in that one party is traditionally associated with one position on that subject and the other is associated traditionally with the diametrically opposed position. But I don't think it has to be that way. And and I write in the book in a few different locations in the book, uh, different essays, that there isn't any reason, for example, for 
environmental issues to be political. They have been politicized, but they are not political. When I talk about social justice, I'm talking about the right relationship between a country and its immigrants, or a country and its prisoners, or a country and its marginalized citizens, and how we protect those people. And to me, it's just part of what it means to be an American. We we have protections built in for minorities, people who are not And by minorities, I don't mean that in the old sense of racial sense. I mean it in people who do not hold the political power. We have protections set up for them, and I consider those things social justice issues and not political issues, because there isn't any reason why we can't agree on a reasonable approach to imprisoning people who have broken the law or what appropriate, you know, sentencing matches certain crimes. I think that is something that we we should be able to agree on, regardless of our political orientation. And do you think in writing about these topics in the New York Times and expressing a more nuanced view from the South, do you think it's helped people around the country understand that it's not this one-dimensional white Southern, typically racist orientation down here, that there are a number of different voices? I wish I knew the answer to that question, because that is my hope. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. When I write about politics, I would say 100% of the time, I make people mad on both sides of the political aisle, at least on Twitter. We no longer prize or celebrate complexity in our discourse. And so any attempt to present a more nuanced view of anything is troublesome to a lot of people. So on a lot of social media and parts of the internet, the comment sections can be rather difficult to read through. Do you look at the comments on your columns? Yes and no. I have a general policy of not looking at all. But there are times when somebody will say, generally my husband will say, oh, they're so nice this time. You have to read these. People are saying the sweetest things. And the thing is, and and I knew this would happen because when I first started writing every week, Ann Patchett, the novelist who lives here in town, I ran into her at Parnassus, the bookstore she co-owns with Karen Hayes. And she said, this is so great, but I do have some advice for you. And And I was taking all advice anybody could give me. And I, and she said, don't ever read the comments because even if somebody tells you they're all nice, they will not all be nice. And the one that it, even if there's 999 that are kind and it's a completely uncontroversial subject you're writing about, there'll be one that that's the one you'll be remembering at three o'clock in the morning. And it's true, but you know, I do think it's important to understand how things are being read, but I generally let social media sort of tell me that instead of trying to wade through the comments. Often the comments aren't even turned on sometimes, but sometimes the comments go up up well over a thousand and I can't possibly read them all. Now, in reading a column from about a year and a half ago, it was about the tornadoes that struck Middle Tennessee and, and killed so many folks, especially over in Crossville. But reading that column and knowing that coronavirus is just right around the corner. There's like a sense of hurt as I had as a reader of going, you know, she doesn't even know what's coming at this point. You know, it's funny. 
I think I did at that exact moment figure out what was coming because I was <laughs> sick in bed and it was COVID. I went to New York for work and I came home the last week of February and I came home really sick and then the flu test was negative and I thought this is surely it's not but I asked the doctor can I have a test for this virus that's going around I just got back from New York and the, the doctor in the walk-in clinic said well it's not in New York yet and I said if it's in this country it's in New York we just don't know it yet and sure enough later I found out that I do have for a long time all last year I had really high levels of antibodies to COVID so I had been sick and really sick I got pneumonia so it was starting to dawn on me that this was, I wrote that column lying on my bed with my laptop up on my knees, on my thighs, typing because I couldn't sit up straight. There's a little bit of that kind of dislocation. I think anytime you read these essays that have to do with specific events, because we didn't know what was coming. And I ruled out when I was putting the collection together quite a few things because they were so, so specific to a particular time. And I tried in these to include things that even if the circumstances themselves were very specific, like the tornado, what I was trying to say about that circumstance transcended time in some way. And in that case, it was about how people come together in a disaster and try to help. I think that's a pretty universal human response. Close, not, not truly universal, but very close. When something terrible happens, we try to help. I was wondering, though, why you're essay about the bombing in Nashville that happened on Christmas Day 2020 didn't make it into the collection? Well, there were a lot of other pieces that had to do with what happened, various things that have happened in Nashville. And I tried to open the book up as much as I could to to be able to talk about regional things, trends and people and challenges. And that particular piece was really not about it was really so specific to Nashville. It was a tornado that hit Nashville. But tornadoes hit people all over the South, and people all over have the same reaction. They want to help. A bombing was so bizarrely unexpected, and it was hard for me to draw any issues from that, I guess. I mean, I had to rule a bunch of stuff out for no reason at all, other than here are two pieces on pollinator gardens. Which one do I like better? Instead of, you know, because one was, had, you know, not aged as well or something. There were a lot of concerns and trying to avoid repetition was definitely one of them. Now back to relatability, your son's plans for his wedding were affected greatly by the, the pandemic. Can you walk us a little bit through his and your daughter-in-law's attempts to get married, how that was affected by everything? Well, of course, I don't write about my family, at least not my, my immediate family, very much. I write about my family of origin. I write about my grandparents and my great-grandmother a lot. But I try to keep my kids out of things. Sometimes my husband appears from time to time, often as a comic foil. But I'm not really in the business of writing about my family. I want to keep them as protected from this public life of mine as I can. But what was going on with my son and my oldest son and daughter-in-law's wedding was happening everywhere. It was happening to European monarchs and not just to a school teacher and an OR nurse in Nashville. So a lot of what they were going through did have resonance 
well outside our family and outside our region. And when my editor suggested that maybe it would be a good column topic, I asked them and they said, they kind of loved the idea. They loved the idea of having a wedding picture in the New York Times. And I specifically offered photographs that didn't show their face. My children have a different last name than mine. And I thought, you know, even though I was writing about their wedding, I could do it without naming their names or having any pictures. And the picture that ran with the column was just you couldn't see their faces, but they wanted to put their names in the caption. So I did all this to protect them for nothing. But anyway, it was just something we were, it was just one of the things that we were having to negotiate as a family and as a culture last year. And even this year, I'll be going to a wedding at the end of this month that this is the third try. This is their third date. And they've had to cancel both of the other ones because of COVID. Like your first book, your brother is an artist, Billy Wrinkle, and he's done the cover for this book as well. And if you're not paying close attention, you just think it's a a nice landscape painting, but you look more closely at it. And it's pretty impressive the feat he's pulled off by making it seem a coherent whole. My brother, Billy Wrinkle, is a collage artist, and he, he takes pieces of paper that have had another life before him and repurposes them. For this book cover, he took antique postcards from the South and made little strips. And if you look, I think you could see if you get really close, you can almost even see how there's a there's a depth to where the edges come together. So you can see that this is not a digital collage. It's not something he manipulated in Photoshop. It's something he created by cutting things out. I thought it was such a great idea. I had nothing to do with it, of course, but I thought it was such a great way to visually signify that this is a book about many places that create a kind of whole. That's what I was hoping anyway, a picture that's that's a whole. And also that it's, I think, very emblematic of an essay collection generally, that you're patching it together in a way instead of writing straight through from start to finish. Now, Paul, you do cover a lot of very important topics, politics, religion, social justice, the ecology. It's not all serious, weighty matters. I mean, you do talk about the television soap opera Nashville for one of the columns. That was a really fun piece to do. I I was following Charles Esten on Facebook. He's a childhood friend of my one of my sisters-in-law. And we met him one time when my my husband's brother and sister-in-law were in town. And so I was following him on Facebook and he mentioned that every item from every set for the entire series run was going to be for sale in this huge warehouse. So I just went to see what it was like. And it was really quite astonishing. And it just got me to thinking about the difference between Nashville in the public imagination and Nashville as longtime residents think of it, what part's real and what part's not real, how much of it is fabricated in a show like that. So it was really more of a meditation on appearances versus reality than it was about the TV show. But I did love the TV show. I actually loved it. I watched every episode. Of course, we know Nashville has changed in many ways, but you do notice how the approach to celebrity has changed. You know, when people see Connie Britton or Nicole Kidman or uh, her husband, you see people looking for selfies nowadays. It's so disappointing, really. 
that was one of the great things when we first, we moved to Nashville in 1987. And of course, you know, Nashville's the country music capital of the world. And yet you could sit in the pancake pantry on a Sunday morning and you could see any number of country music stars or you, you could be shopping or walking around Radnor Lake. And it was a sort of civic pride that we took, that we were so careful to protect our celebrities from harassment. But that was before the days of cell phones. And now, you know, poor Keith and Nicole, they can't go to the movies without having everybody in the lobby want to take a selfie with them. It's, you know, as I said in the essay, I just want to say, honey, we don't do that here. But I guess we do that here now. The essay form, especially published in The Times, is a really compact form, and it left me wanting more many times during the course of reading the book. And I got to know about your attempt to cross Gloria Steinem and George Plimpton when you tried to join the football team. Well, I wrote about that in the essay I wrote about Vanderbilt COVID era kicker, Sarah Fuller, who was, she's graduated now, a member of the women's soccer team at Vanderbilt. And when the kicker on the football team was quarantined and then the backup kicker was quarantined. They, the football team was in trouble and they, they asked Sarah Fuller, who's a member of this women's team that had just won a championship, if she would train with them for less than a week, I think. And it reminded me of the time I tried out for the football team. I think it was the fall of 1977. I was the girls' sports editor on the Patriot Press, Homewood High School's student newspaper. I gave myself the assignment to pretend to try out for the football team. Partly that was, there was no way I was going to try out for real because I'm not athletic. I have no athletic ability and I would get killed if I had practiced for real with the team. But it was just for a story and the coach told me I couldn't actually practice with the team unless I had taken out their sports insurance policy. And it was expensive and we didn't have any money. So I just did the workouts with the team, really. I didn't actually go out and try to throw or kick or catch a ball. But the team all thought I was trying out for real. And so it was a fun opportunity to see, to just test what the public reaction, that not, not public in the sense that I mean public now, but in the sense of was my, was my little community ready for a girl football player? Because Title IX said that I could play if I wanted to. This was 77. I think t Title IX became law maybe in 73. It hadn't been very long. And nobody had tested it out. So what I was doing was really just writing an essay about what it felt like to do that and how people reacted to it. I stayed a week. My my stint as a football player lasted a week. So have you been working on any other writing in addition to your New York Times columns? I'm working on another book of essays for Milkweed. We haven't completely nailed down the publication date yet or the title, but it'll be a collection of essays about the natural world. All of them will be nature essays. And, and more like late migrations, there'll be a variety of links and approaches. It'll have more variety to it, even though all the subject, you know, every one of them will be, will concern the same basic subject. So, Margaret, what is a Southern author anyway? <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> this may sound like the coward's way out, but it's definitely, it's what I actually believe. And I think that a Southern 
writer is anybody who identifies themselves as a Southern writer. And the reason I take that approach is because we are such a diverse region now. I mean, I think we always were, but I mean, we definitely always were, but we associate the term Southern writer with Faulkner or Eudora Welty or Flannery O'Connor. And those are all old white people. And nowadays, you know, a Southern writer can be new to the South, can be new to this country, can be all different ages and all different from all different backgrounds. And so that's what I think it is. I think we we as a region are stronger when we celebrate diverse voices. Uh, because it is one of the things you do express frustration with is the view in the South as a monolith. In writing for the Times, it's my greatest frustration is how often people outside the South think they know us and think they know what we stand for and and what they know is a stereotype. And sure, there are there's a reason things become stereotypes. There's some truth in those stereotypes, but they aren't the only truth. And it's I'm surprised by how many people hold steadfast to their misapprehension, even when they've never been here and or even met anybody from here. They think they know who we are. And when I try to tell them that's your prejudice showing, they argue with me. I've stopped arguing with anybody on Twitter or Facebook. It's pointless to argue with strangers on the Internet. But I'm amazed at how many people are just really, really deeply married to the idea that we're all racists. The title essay comes at the very end of the book. So why did it take you so long to get to Graceland in real life? (laughs) In real life, it's because Memphis is three hours from Nashville in the opposite direction of where our families live. My husband is one of six children. He has five brothers and sisters, and all of them live somewhere in the eastern time zone. My brother and his family live in Clarksville, Tennessee, not very far from here. My sister and her family live in Birmingham, Alabama. So we were always going south, or we were going southeast, or we were going due east, or we were going northeast when we when we were going anywhere. We didn't have a lot of time to travel, and we certainly we couldn't afford airplane tickets. And so we took our kids to see their grandparents. We didn't take them to see Elvis's house. What was your favorite part of Graceland once you finally did get to go? I couldn't even tell you what I loved best about Graceland. I just, I loved it so much. It was just, there's something about that house, which is very modest, really, by today's standards. You know, the kitchen's just a normal little small kitchen. It's not you know, the houses that are considered grand houses now with where the kitchen's as big as the entire downstairs of Graceland. It's it looks like a poor boy from Mississippi's idea of a mansion. And I just loved all the things, all the little details that reinforced that idea, you know, that this was a poor kid who had made it and he had decorated his house to look the way he imagined wealthy people wanted their house to look. Well, Margaret, I want to thank you so much for coming on Book Talk again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. 
It's always a pleasure to talk with you too, Stephen. I'm sorry I didn't get to see you on the plaza at the Southern Festival Books, but maybe next year. Margaret Wrinkle is the author of Graceland at Last, Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. And it's published by Milkweed Editions. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced by Stephen Ussery and is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. Any retransmission or reproduction without the express written consent of FM 89.3 WIPL of the Memphis Public Library and Information Center, a department of the City of Memphis, is strictly prohibited.